Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Len. Dracula, filling in for Lady Daberman, who's at the blood bank, making a withdrawal. I am joined by my co-host, Jeff Frankenstein Cohen, and our guest, co-host, Igor. Jeff, it is an honor to host with you. (laughs) Jeff, I could go kill something and we can barbecue it, Jeff. All right, very funny, Len. <laughs> Len is not here. I told you he's at the blood bank, getting me my well-needed supply. Obviously, this is the Halloween episode of Baseball BBQ. Leonard, you want to say who's on the program tonight? Oh, Jeff, boy, am I in a Halloween spirit? We have. Such an exciting episode on baseball and barbecue. We have the author of Hall Ball, none other than... Ralph Carhart. That is right, Jeff. I keep going in and out of Dracula. And Leonard, I don't know what's... (laughs) I am possessed, I think. I think so, too. And, of course, we also have None other than Chad Ward from Traeger. This is going to be a spooky, scary, trick-or-treat, sweets-filled episode, Jeff. Yes. And let me tell the people, if they want to get in touch with us, and after that performance, why would they? Give us a call. (laughs) 516-855-8214. Email us. Baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. Visit us on our Facebook page. Visit us on, on Twitter. We are at, at Baseball and BBQ. We also have a 
a website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And we also have an Instagram, baseball and, B- and barbecue. Barbecue is all spelled out. And we also have a YouTube page. So check us out any way you can. Give us a call. Also, rate and review us. But do not send me garlic. I, I cannot take garlic. Garlic will kill me. <laughs> when we barbecue, we use garlic. I am sorry, Count, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> Dracula, whoever that is. <laughs> Jeff, yes, all I want to say to you is trick or treat. Yes, trick or treat. <laughs> Give me episode 73. Jeff, can you tell I'm excited to be here? I can tell, yes. It's a really, it's a really good episode we have today. And just like our, our past episodes, you know, give us a listen, rate and review us. You know, we, need, we would love your feedback. Or don't, <laughs> the case may be. You know, Ralph Carhart, perfect for this episode because he took that ball, which he'll talk about, and he not only went to the Living Hall of Famers and had his picture taken with them and had them... Yeah, his picture taken with the ball. But he also went to the graves of, of course, the deceased Hall of Famers. And he had the picture of the ball taken at the graves. And and the story of how he had to do some of that is just really incredible. So I think everyone's going to really like that. And as I said, Chad Ward and the stories that he tells and just two great guests. So, Jeff, why don't you kick it off? Get us going with the first guest. All right. And here is... Ralph Carhart. Ralph Carhart is a Brooklyn-based theater director and manager, as well as a baseball historian. Active in the Society for American Baseball Research, he has contributed four volumes of player biographies published by Sabre and is the head of the 19th century baseball grave marker project. He has written a new book entitled The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Ralph Carhart. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Good. Welcome. 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 I, I, I thought your book was absolutely fantastic. It's called The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to Unite Cooperstown's Immortal with a Single Baseball. So the premise was taking a picture with all living Hall of Famers up until I believe it was 2018 was your last class that you were able to take pictures with. And, then, and also go visit the grave sites of all the people who have been deceased. Is that, uh, that the way it worked? Work? That is correct. That's pretty much the, the whole premise in a nutshell. Uh, I took a picture of them either holding the ball if they were alive or the ball at their grave if they weren't. So let's go, let's go to the beginning. And, be, and before we start, I got to tell you, I thought I was the only one who had this obsession with graveyards. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. When I first got married, I, I don't know what it was, but I, when my wife and I would go places and I would see like an old graveyard, I would go in. Now, I wouldn't do etchings. You know, some people like to do etchings on the stones. But Which you it, shouldn't do, by the way. It's actually, it, it makes the stones break down faster. It's that's not, good. Well, he, says with a, he says with an etching over his shoulder. <laughs> um, but it, but it, it is a thing that you actually shouldn't do, that I've been told. But I love to read the, the really old stones and, and read some of the things. And just, I don't know what it was, but I had this obsession with going to these, these these sites and seeing whether there was a famous person there or whoever it was, it yeah. didn't matter. So nice to nice to know I'm not alone. Yeah, yeah. and and I mentioned in the book it's a you know I, I say new. It's been ten years now, but you know I'm 47, so ten years is new for me. 
but it was, you know, a relatively newfound love that, that came with a newfound love of genealogy. About a decade ago, I, I got into genealogy and that's, that's how it all came about. Let's start at the beginning, all right? As Julie Andrews would say, very good <laughs> place to start. The idea, the ball that you used, take us through that. The ball and the idea happened the same weekend. My wife and I were in Cooperstown for the All-Star Game celebrations that they do. That they do. They, um, they'll show the game at the museum and they'll have a special event inside the theater in there where they do things like hand out popcorn and hot dogs and do trivia and stuff between innings. And it, it, it's, we, we'd gone before and we wanted to go back. So we were in town for that. And, well, the ball came first. The ball was us watching a game at Doubleday Field which is that little ballpark that's at the heart of Cooperstown, this little uh, jewel of a field that was a WPA project. It was built in 1939. And there's a little stream that runs next to it. And we were watching the game, and my wife noticed that there was the ball down in the stream. So, you know, she ran down and got it, because that's what you do when you see a baseball in the wild. <laughs> then later that night, or it may, it may have been the next night, somewhere there, we uh, were early for dinner reservations and had some time. And by this point, my genealogy bug was in full throttle, so we decided to hit the local cemetery and see what we could find. We didn't really think we had any family in the area, but by then, just walking around cemeteries had sort of become a meditative experience for us. So we went to the one that was there, and, and within, within the first 20 minutes of being there, my wife found a stone for Abner Doubleday. Now, it's not our Abner, the mythological creator of baseball. He's in Arlington in, in Virginia, but it was his grandfather, and seeing his name, seeing the name Abner Doubleday written in stone was sort of the, the catalyst that got me wondering as to what it would take to go on a journey to, take a, to, to visit all of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. When I got home, I did a little research to see if I could find where these guys were buried. And that was when I discovered there was another Sabre member by the name of Stu Thornley who'd already done that. It was a mission he'd already gone on. He had this great website with photos and details. And I... I was happy that I had all this information readily available to me. It saved me a ton of time, but I was a, a little bummed that it had already been done. I'm a theater guy, and so I like part of what that means to me as being someone who creates theater is, is always finding a new way to tell the story. And so I, I needed a new way to tell that story. I needed something to make my journey that I was going to make different from Stu's. And that's when I had the revelation of adding the baseball to it, making the baseball be the subject of the photographs. And then relatively soon after that idea came about, I, I decided that why shouldn't I add the living guys too? And once I had that realization, the, the project in full sort of came about. Well, I want to let you know that Lynn and I went on a little journey of our own. We went to the Hall of Fame years and years ago, and looking through the plaque gallery, we came across, we came by John Montgomery Ward. Mm -hmm. And we were fascinated with this guy. He was a pitcher, then he was a shortstop, and then he got involved with the labor and the management. He was just, we were fascinated by him. Oh, I'm on the uh, this baseball reference looking up uh, John Montgomery Ward, and lo and behold, he is buried not too far from us in Uniondale, Long Island. Yeah, yeah, he's very, very close to you guys. Yes, um, he is. Yeah. So we went on a journey there. We went to his grave site. By the way, there was another ball player buried there, uh, Arlo Latham. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I believe is still on the top 10 stolen bases. Not a Hall of Famer, but he was also buried there. Yeah. We, we went to John Montgomery's grave site. 
you know, so John Montgomery Ward, the dates he lived, and his wife, and <laughs> that was it. No indication yeah, that he's yeah. a Hall of Famer, and we were, I guess, so, so surprised by that. I know yeah, you John's, were there. John's is understated. John, I mean, it's not small. It's a massive chunk of granite, but it's it, it doesn't really say anything about baseball, and it was interesting to me along the journey just how often that was the case it it was a a lot of the time the ball players stones didn't mention baseball at all even you know the ones who were elected to the hall of fame before they died that didn't necessarily guarantee that either he or their family felt it was necessary to mention their their baseball career on their stones it was fascinating to me how often that happened absolutely i want to start with people who passed away. I've noticed in your book, which I really enjoyed, it's called The Hall Ball, One Fan's Journey to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. And I noticed going through the pictures that some of them are, like you said, understated. Like I'm looking one right now on my computer. It says uh, Bob Feller. Very small, just the dates, yep. nothing that he's a Hall of Famer. And then you get someone like Pee Wee Reese, which is a humongous <laughs> granite. Yeah, yeah. Pee Wee's is big. Yeah, and it's just, it, it, it's really striking how, how different they are. You know, these guys are Hall of Famers, and, you know, some of them just say nothing about it. How about yeah. that? It's interesting. The, the thing that actually was fascinating to me about the Feller Stone, you know, compared to some of, uh, of the other stones of the Hall of Famers, is I noticed another recurring trend beyond the fact that they didn't always mention that they were baseball players. If they were a veteran, most of the time the stones mentioned that. Right. They, they make a point of, of saying that they served. And Fellers doesn't even do that. Fellerstone nope. is just the name and the dates, and that's it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The, you wonder what thoughts go through, you know. I, like, I, because of the nature of what I do and how much time I spend in cemeteries, I've, of course, spent a fair amount of time thinking about what my stone says. <laughs> um, so, you know, it makes me wonder what other, the, the thought processes of other people um, especially people who are famous, you know, especially Bob Feller famous. There's a lot of guys in the Hall of Fame who most baseball fans don't know, right? That's That was part of the goal with the project was to find a way to get the the 200 names that most people wouldn't be able to come up with and sort of, uh, in, in my broad general way, equalize them with the Babe Ruths and the Ty Cobbs, you know? So for for someone like Feller, who who is still a name, it's fascinating to see the modesty that's connected to that stone. Absolutely. Jeff and I do, and we don't do it consistently, but it's our podcast, so we can do whatever we want. <laughs> that's true. You guys are in charge. You guys are in charge. We, um, but we came up with a feature that we call um, Lesser Known Hall of Famers, and mm-hmm. we will try to conclude an episode by you know, giving some information about one of them. And obviously, lesser known, we know what that means. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got a, a lot of them in the book. And then we'll read their plaque. And, and there's so many we have no idea about. Yeah. Your book brought out even more, and they were right there, people that were involved with the, the founding of baseball and making the game starting what is now it's such a great game. One of the things that I thought was very interesting in the book was that there were two versions of baseball. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. You, you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. You know, so the one of those driving forces for me in, in, in terms of finding those lesser known guys is that I'm a huge fan of the 19th century and the origin story of baseball, which is, you know, a very 
complex and convoluted tale that your average fan doesn't know. And, and, you know, one of the fun parts of being a historian, even on a amateur semi pro level, like I'm doing is, is sort of helping people learn those stories. And, and one of my favorite stories from the early, early pioneering days of baseball is that there were at first two different games that were competing for public attention. There was the New York game, which very closely resembles the game that we play now. And there was the Massachusetts game, which was more popular in the Boston area. And it had different rules. You know, it was similar to cricket in that there wasn't really necessarily fair and foul territory. The batter, there were four bases, but the batter didn't start at a home plate. The batter started in a position between the fourth base and the first base. So after they made contact, that first run was, you know, half the distance. You could get a batter out by soaking him, which was taking the ball and throwing it at him and hitting him. There, there were there were a lot of ways in which the game, uh, that particular game, it, you know, and I, I'm I'm sort of quoting uh, baseball historian John Thorne here, but I think he's right. In that was a much more exciting game. There was an aspect to that sort of the unusual nature of all those various rules that we eventually got rid of that made it a more fast paced and, and action filled game. But the press of the New York game, the the PR machine as it was um, behind the forces who were developing baseball, just did a much better job of of selling the New York game. And that ended up being the the game that we have now. You know, going around, looking at the, uh, reading the book, uh, before we get to the Living Hall of Famers, I want to say that there's, what would the the most interesting part, stone that you saw, or um, not all the stones, you weren't able to take pictures with all the stones because some people were cremated. So I think you went to, I think it was Tom Yorkie's final resting site was, was spread out. You went to the lake or something, you held up the ball. So you went actually to all the sites. Yeah, so. there, were, there were 18, I believe it's 18, between 18 and 20 Hall of Famers who weren't buried in the traditional manner. They were cremated or in the case of Roberto Clemente, he was lost at sea. His family never right. installed a memorial for him. So for those guys, I decided to do what I, what I refer to in the book as the symbolic ones. I did a symbolic photo of those folks. And for someone like Tom Yawkey, who, when he was cremated, his ashes were spread. He used to own a nature preserve off the coast of South Carolina that used to be sort of like a private fishing hideaway for him and and his influential friends, Ted Williams and Ty Cobb fished there with him. And when he died, he left that land to the state of uh, South South Carolina. You can't get onto the island easily. There's like two ferries a day, five months a year, and you have to make a reservation like six months in advance, something like that. Because it is a nature preserve and they're trying to, you know, keep human encroachment from interfering with that. So I couldn't get onto the island itself. But what I did do is I went to the coast of it. I went to the the water there and I staged the ball near the water because when Yaki died, he had his ashes spread around that area, around the island. So, you know, that was that was the Yaki one. My favorite one from the symbolic ones was actually umpire Al Barlick, who got his start in Springfield, Illinois, calling games for the company, he was a miner. He, he was one of those literal baseball, the guy comes out of the mines and makes it to the major leagues. It was a true story for Al Barlick. And so I, with the help of a gentleman from the Illinois 
foundation of mines. I don't remember the, uh, the, the part of the Illinois government that looks at mines and minerals. I was able to find the last surviving physical structure of the mine that he worked in. And I took a picture of the ball there. So I tried to do creative stuff like that for the 18, 20 guys who uh, were not buried in the traditional way. You know, I asked you this, this question on an email because I didn't want to forget it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, people do make pilgrimages to, to some grave sites. Uh, I mentioned Babe Ruth and, and Lou Gehrig. They leave baseballs and other memorabilia. And I always wanted to know what happened to all that stuff. And you right. kindly answered me what happened with the Babe Ruth. And I was really shocked by that. The, the Babe Ruth one, I don't know how often they do this, but the Babe Ruth one is special because the Babe Ruth Museum has come up to, and, and Babe Ruth buried in Westchester at Gates of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne. And the Babe Ruth Museum, which is based out of Baltimore, came up and they cleared a bunch of the things that people had left behind off his grave and they brought them back to the museum and they did a display of the items that people have left behind. Most of the time that stuff ends up in the garbage. Um, you know, really? like if you, yeah, I mean, if, if you are, that's sort of what happens at cemeteries in general. Cemeteries tell you, you know, that when you leave things at the grave, you need to take it away by this date or they will throw it out. Well, you know, that's, that's what happens if, you know, Maybe if one of the caretakers of the, of the area has a kid at home and they want a baseball, they'll bring them that baseball. But, you know, most of the stuff gets cleared off. It's why I tell people that if they want to leave a, a memento at a grave, the, the oldest tradition is still the best, you know, and it, it, it was based in the Jewish tradition of just taking a stone mm-hmm. and placing that stone on the grave to show that I was here and I was thinking of you. You know, quite honestly, if you're going to leave something there, that's what you should leave. I, I had this... I don't know what drove it, what inspired it, but I just had this thing that was important to me throughout the project that I not change anything. I don't leave anything behind. I don't move anything when it's there. There was only like once or twice where I kind of shifted something slightly because it was blocking the name and I wanted to see the name on the stone. But for the most part, the pictures that you see were what it looked like when I showed up. And I didn't want to physically change it while I was there either. So I, I sort of left it in the, in the way it was. Now, Ralph, I guess we're met. Some people thought the idea strange. And, and I guess I thought it's strange that people would think it was strange. But then again, <laughs> we, we have a podcast called Baseball and BBQ. So, <laughs> you know, so um, I, but I didn't think it was strange at all. Why were you met with that reaction by some people? Most of the, I'll say this, the fans that I've talked to about it, I've never had a fan, uh, a baseball fan say to me, that's weird and dumb. Why are you doing that? That's creepy. The the only people who ever sort of saw it as odd were the Hall of Famers themselves. Uh, and it wasn't all of them. Some of them are really great. Some of them, you know, when I first started, I didn't tell the Hall of Famers what I was doing. You know, the first five or six photos of a living guy, I, I was just overwhelmed by the fact that I had was now actively incorporating the living guys. And, and I didn't really think about it beyond that point. Um, after the first handful, though, I realized that it was really only fair for me to tell them why I was doing it. So, you know, in that 15 seconds that I had, I got my description of the project down to like this 15 second wrap that I gave every Hall of Famer. And some of them were like, oh, that's really fun. That's really cool you know, and and were super supportive of me taking the picture. Some of them 
didn't understand. And that's in part because I didn't ask for an autograph. Uh, it's important to remember that there are no signatures on the ball, almost no signatures. There's <laughs> one letter from one signature because someone started to sign it and I stopped them. But there, there's no signatures on the ball whatsoever. And that was, that was for a couple of reasons. The, the first was just logistical. There's like 75 living guys. There's no way to get 75 signatures on a baseball and have them look like anything. But it was also more than that. that, that idea that I talked about earlier about equating the little known names of baseball with the, the big names of baseball in this way that it hadn't been done before. And by highlighting that some of them, you know, could sign this ball and some of them couldn't felt weird to me. I, I, I didn't want that. I wanted it there to be an equality to it. So for the hall of famers, it was occasionally off-putting to them because I didn't want the signature. I got most of the pictures at baseball card shows. I, I made friends with the promoters. I'm lucky enough that I live in New York City, so there's a baseball card show coming through here often enough. And I made friends with the promoters at the various baseball card shows, and they sort of gave me backstage access. After the guys were done signing on the floor, they'd come in the back, and I would get my 30 seconds to talk to them and get the photo. And that fact that I didn't want the signature, which is what so many of them are, are just used to when they interact with a fan, especially at a baseball card show, right? They're, they're being asked for the autograph. And I didn't ask for that. And I think for some of them, that was a little off-putting. You know, when, there were a, a couple of them that after I said, no, no, I don't want the autograph, just the picture, you know, I, I got a look. Jack Morris gave me a look. I remember, I heard Jack Morris as I was walking away after that picture. I heard him turn to the assistant at the baseball card show. He's, baseball card shows always assign these guys. There's always someone sitting next to them to sort of keep people from getting rowdy. And I heard him turn to the, the woman sitting next to him and say, what the hell was that? You know? <laughs> so, so for some of them, the, the fact that there was no signature involved, was a little off-putting. Uh, it's just not a thing, a, a question they're used to being asked. I was asking for something that no one else has ever really asked them for before. I like what Tom Glavin said to you. He wouldn't <laughs> be the last one. <laughs> yes, Tom Glavin was funny. Tom Glavin set me up for the Randy Johnston one to go poorly uh, uh, because, because I asked Tom Glavin and I gave him the story and Tom Glavin said to me, well, am I the last living guy? And I said, oh, no, no, there's, you know, I have about 15 left at this point. And he said, oh, well, then never mind. I want to be last. And he handed the ball to me. And I thought he was serious. And then he started <laughs> laughing and he took the ball back and I got my picture. It was fun. Like, I love yeah. those kinds of interactions. They're sure. entertaining. And then immediately after that, I had a chance to get Randy Johnson. And I, I handed the ball to Randy and I told him the story. And Randy said to me, okay, you can take the picture, but not my face. And I thought he was kidding, too. Tom had just told this really funny joke yeah. that Randy was telling. No, he was serious. <laughs> and, and when I said, well, I, I kind of need your face for the picture, he said, all right, well, then never mind. I'm not doing it. And, and that was how I struck out with Randy Johnson the first time. I got Johnson eventually, but, but Tom Glavin's jocularity set me up to not think that Randy Johnson was being serious with me. And I, I guess I should have known better. Well, well, let's talk about that. I was going to say that for a little while, but, you know, since you mentioned Randy Johnson, I know that one had to be a little painful in the wallet. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, I was fortunate in connecting with the, the promoters of the baseball card shows because they not only gave me that access, but they didn't charge me. You know, I, I'm a, I work for CUNY. I'm, I'm not a wealthy individual by any means. And by necessity to get to all of the graves, 
there was a lot of travel. I drove 24,000 miles and I flew 24,000 miles. So I spent a, a fair amount of money on travel, uh, on hotels and plane tickets and all that sort of stuff. If I added the extra expense of the autograph fees on top of the 75 living guys that I got, you know, the price tag sure. gets considerably larger. So I, uh, of the 72, three uh, photos of living Hall of Famers that I took, I think I paid for about five of them. And the rest I was able to get for free. The Randy Johnson one was the most expensive <laughs> out of all of them by far. I paid probably twice what I paid for any other uh, picture. And keep in mind, I had no autograph to show for it when I was all done. I was just paying for a picture. So that one was a little tough. That one was hard. It was, and it was especially hard because it was a baseball card promoter that I'd never worked with before. I had a lot of luck with uh, MAB, which is uh, based out of Jersey, and JB and Rock Solid Promotions. They do the baseball card shows that are at Hofstra, and they do another mm-hmm. one up in White Plains. Those folks were super helpful for me. The Randy Johnson one was a whole new company that was just sort of blowing through town. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And I couldn't really get anyone there to listen to me or give me a break in any way. And by that point, I had gotten close enough to the end that I knew I probably wasn't going to be chasing Randy Johnson down a third time. So I just bought the ticket and, and got my picture that way. So then he agreed to do it after he bought the tickets from the door. Oh, well, yes, yes. When you buy the ticket, mm. pretty much always agree. Yeah. <laughs> you bought the ticket. So, you know, and he gave a great smile in the picture. He looks very happy in the photo. Sure. Uh, <laughs> He's I, keeping I, his money. Yeah. yeah he made 250 this. more bucks, and he didn't even have to sign his name this time. So, Right. So well, let me bring you to, you know, your last one was in 2018. So you didn't get the 2019 class, and obviously 2020 has been postponed. Mm-hmm. Look, my son is a big Yankee fan, and I wanted to, and I think, uh, and Mario Rivera had a book signing a couple of, you know, a couple of years ago in Huntington, and he came early, left early, you know, he, he didn't even sign the book, it already, it was already in it, and they were charging for uh, a picture, and he didn't, yeah. didn't have enough time to get it. Yeah, yeah. Be that as it may. Be that as it may. Do you think... If you were able to get Mario Rivera, would you think you would have paid for that one, or if you, if you would have been generous <laughs> enough to do it? Because he seems to be charging a lot of money for for an autograph. Well, there are guys who don't do the autograph round uh, circuit very often, and the ones who don't do it very often tend to charge a little bit more. Um, Rivera, I don't know what Rivera's policies have become now that he's in the Hall of Fame. In that five-year period between when he retired and when he was elected. Uh, he very rarely did public appearances, certainly not autograph sessions, not not with any regularity. It was a rarity. So as a result, he's one of those ones who who asked for more money. What, would I pay for Mariano? I mean, that's such a tough question to ask because, you know, like I said, the reason I was willing to pay for the Randy Johnson one is because I knew I was reaching the end of the project soon mm-hmm. and I just wanted to get it done. So, if, you know, if I were to revive the ball and and start trying to pursue these guys again i, I maybe you know, <laughs> maybe. I, 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 don't only, know. I don't know it's a tough call yeah the reason i bring it up because uh, uh barrera also i know gita they they rarely do the signing and yeah he's a tough one and too. they charge an awful lot you know seeing the the steiner site whatever that is so you know for, for the project you know it might have been very difficult to get those and you know like you said being, paying a lot of money for them it's 
you know, I don't know if yeah, it's worth yeah. it or not, but yeah, I got, I got out just in time. Yes. Before, I think you did before Mariano and Jeter got elected. I got out just in time. <laughs> yeah. Ralph, some of them, and you mentioned Gary Carter in the book yeah, uh, yeah. and that he was uh, your biggest regret because you didn't get him. You missed out getting him uh, yeah. while he was alive. So you ended up uh, taking a picture of his grave. And then, of course, there are others that your, yours will always be unique because you got Yogi Berra, you got Ralph Kiner, you got the oldest... Uh, uh, oh. Bobby Doerr. Bobby right. you know, Ernie Banks, so Jim Bunning. There, there's, uh, by the time I was done, I think there were Tony Gwynn. Uh, by the time I was done, I think there were about eight or nine Hall of Famers that I was able to photograph them while they are alive and they're not with us anymore. And the first one to pass after I photographed them while they were still alive was Ralph Kiner, which was, you know, I'm a Mets fan. So I, I grew up listening to Ralph call baseball. Um, mm-hmm. He was always special to me. And the fact that he was the first to die was significant, not just because of my Mets fandom, but, but I have to admit, and this sounds naive to, to 2020 Ralph, but uh, Ralph Carhart, but when <laughs> Ralph Kiner died, I, it didn't occur to me until that moment that I really was making something that was irreplaceable. I could do a Hall Ball 2.0, right? Like I could find a new baseball at Double Day Field next year and decide I'm doing this whole thing all over again, except this time I'm not going to have Ralph Kiner and I'm not going to have Yogi Berra and I'm not going to have, you know, a, a number of living Hall of Famers that were around the first time that aren't the, what I have made is unique and will always remain. So. Absolutely. Uh, I also, I'm looking at Gary Carter's gravestone again, not a mention of the baseball hall of fame, just uh, yeah, yeah. a little saying and, and, and date, which, you know, right. is, is and kind I of think his grave, doesn't his grave also say like husband and father, husband, dad, and yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Another one I'm yeah. looking at is, uh, is Casey Stengel. Yeah. Big name. Huge it's, name. Although I will say this, and this was a choice that I had to make. Casey Stone is simple, but Casey is uh, buried next to a mausoleum. And on the outside wall of the mausoleum, not far from where his stone is, is a giant plaque that tells you all about Casey. And I, I had to make a choice because I decided early on that I wanted, for the most part, each grave to really only have one photo. Every now and then, I kind of had to pull it out a little bit. The Babe Ruth grave is just so massive that if I had photographed the ball, it just would have gotten lost in the 20 other balls that were there. So I kind of had to do a two-picture two thing for Babe. Uh, but for the most part, I, I decided I was just going to have one representative photo for each grave. And I had to decide with Casey if I wanted to do it at the plaque or at the grave itself. And I actually went with the grave itself because because Edna's name is on it too. Um, I tried to make a point most of the time, sometimes I missed it, um, but I tried to make a point of, especially when I knew the story uh, between the husband and wife. And I, I knew, you know, again, as a Mets fan, I know Casey's story and I know his relationship with Edna and that, that incredible relationship that they had, but I wanted her to be in the picture too. So that was why Casey's mm-hmm. photo is just the stone and not the big plaque that tells everything. But if you go to Casey's grave, there's plenty of history there for you to, to read. Gotcha. Now, Ralph, you won a, an award. Um, I, I'd like you to talk about it. Last year, the Hilda, mm-hmm. there's more to the Hilda Award. It's, the Hilda Award is what it's called, yeah. Okay. Could you tell, I, I found that fascinating, the, the award itself and, yeah. and what it looks like. 
very interesting. <laughs> it's fun. It's my favorite thing on my baseball shelves right over there. The, the Hilda Award is an award that's given annually by an institution called the Baseball Reliquary that's based out of Pasadena, California. The Baseball Reliquary is kind of, I don't want to say the anti-Hall of Fame, but it's sort of the flip side of the Hall of Fame. The Beyond being an educational resource, it's affiliated with this group called the Institute for Baseball Studies, which is based out of Whittier College. They have a giant baseball library, all these books, all baseball. They have a baseball studies program there. So it's, it was created for their students to be able to do their research. But they also have uh, uh, connected with them the Baseball Reliquary, which is a, an organization that is a, a museum of sorts. They have a bunch of oddball artifacts including like Doc Ellis's hair curlers. Like it's, you know, it's, it's unusual stuff like that. And they also have this thing that they call the Shrine of Eternals, which is their version of the Hall of Fame, only rather than being statistically based, it's, it's a Hall of Fame that recognizes the other kinds of contributions that people provide to baseball. So people like Jim Bouton are in that. Uh, guys like Eddie Geidel, are, are there. Uh, important characters from the story of baseball, even if they didn't have the statistics to put them in the Hall of Fame. And they give out an award annually that is called the Hilda Award. And it's, it's based on Hilda Chester, the famed fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's, we say she's the famed fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. In reality, she was a, a famed fan of Leo DeRocher. She was a big Dodgers fan while Leo was there. And then when Leo went over to the Giants, she became a big Giants fan, in part because Branch Rickey stopped giving her free tickets. But, <laughs> but, but she was a, a, one of the most famous baseball fans, if not the most famous baseball fan of all time, Hilda and her cowbell. And she would sit there in Ebbets Field, banging on that cowbell. She, she got the cowbell. Uh, the team gave her the cowbell because she had screamed herself so violently that she uh, had a heart attack. And so to help her stay alive, <laughs> the team gave her a cowbell so she could make noise with that while she was at the stadium. And so the Baseball Reliquary created an award in her honor uh, that is given annually to a baseball fan who has made a significant contribution to the game. And I was the lucky recipient of the 2019 Hilda Award. It was, um, it was a great honor uh, to have an institution recognize my weird little project and decide that that was something worth celebrating. I, I enjoyed that experience tremendously. They're amazing people. When the world writes itself again and humans can interact with other humans, if you ever find yourself in Pasadena, California, you should really make a point of going to visit them. They're, they're an amazing bunch. Mm. Well, congratulations yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> congratulations. And that, uh, that award was actually also won by uh, the actor uh, Bill Murray. Yes, Bill Murray won. I, I, it is the only award that I and Bill Murray have both won. <laughs> and, and you mentioned, just that you said that it's a funny word. Um, it's a cowbell. It, it's, a, it's a literal cowbell inside a piece of plexiglass that they buy every year. Uh, Terry, the, the guy, Terry Cannon, the guy in charge of the reliquary, told me the whole process behind it. They buy one, you know, in September, and he gives it to a guy who buries it in his backyard so that by the time they're ready to put the plexiglass on it and etch the name on it, it's this rusted, corroded thing that is one of my favorite things on my baseball shelf right now. Nice. Very nice. And yeah. also, you're from New York City, so you would know, you mentioned, you know, strange artifacts, of course, and, and they closed recently, but Foley's. 
Oh, yeah. In, in, in New York, yeah. uh, right? I, I, I had, so I had a dream. Like, I, I had, I've had two fantasies pretty much since I signed the contract with McFarlane to publish the book. And the first fantasy was selling the book on Main Street in Cooperstown during induction weekend. I've, I've been going to induction weekend for the project for, you know, nine, ten years now. And every summer I see those authors with the table set up right there in Main Street and they're selling their book. And I was so looking forward to doing that. And I had the bonus of it being Derek Jeter's year, right? And, you know, if you're, you know, Cooperstown is in the middle of New York. When Yankees get elected to the Hall of Fame, more people show up. So I was going to have this great audience of, you know, 100,000 people who are going to buy my book. And of course, the Hall of Fame announced very early on, uh, mid-April, I think, uh, that rightfully uh, this ceremony was going to be canceled this summer. So, so I had that disappointment. But then I also had this fantasy of having, you know, again, when the world righted itself, of having a book launch at Foley's. Because that's the other thing that you do if you're a baseball writer mm-hmm. in New York City is you take your right. book to Foley's and you have a launch party there and your friends come and you celebrate. And Foley's has not survived the yeah. pandemic either. Right. Um, I have heard uh, that Sean, the, the guy who runs Foley's, is mm-hmm. looking to potentially find a new venue and maybe start up again when the pandemic is over and we'll see. But But yeah, it was heartbreaking to hear that Foley's was closing. Yes. Yeah, by the way, you know, we're big Met fans, Len and I. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Cooperstown yeah. <laughs> also fills up when Mets are going into the Hall of Fame. It's true. Of course, it's, it's very rare. rare. It's very rare. <laughs> <laughs> We've had, had two so far. Two. Right, right. <laughs> it's a good thing those hotels don't have to depend on, on Mets. Mets fans <laughs> right. going in. Where yeah. They'd be... Cooperstown would be closed by yeah for sure for sure that's one of the fun things about going in an induction weekend and I have to say I I don't know even I mean I'll be going next year because again I want to sell my book but I might take a break from induction weekend for a couple of years because it's an intense experience and and, you know as even though I live in New York City I'm not a person who really loves being amongst a hundred thousand other individuals but one of the fun things to do when you're there is uh, year after year is to see how the color scheme changes you know, when, when I was there the summer that all those Braves got in, Glavin got in, I was Glavin, Bobby Cox, and uh, was it Maddox? No, Maddox got in a different year, I think. Anyways, there were three Braves that went in one year. might have been Smoltz. Three Braves went in one year, so the whole town just looked like mini Atlanta. The year Biggio went in, it was just bright orange as far as the eye can see. Just seeing how the color scheme of the town changes based on who's inducted is, is always fascinating. I've never had the chance. One day, hopefully. Getting, okay. back, getting back to the book, it's called The Hall Ball. You said you traveled all over the country. I know you went to even Cuba yeah. for, for this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, what state had the most, had the least? Which, which ones I really? Mean, there, were, uh, there were a handful of states that only had one where I had to make a, you know, a specific side trip to get to that one. Mm-hmm. Boise, Idaho. I'm sorry, in Payette, Idaho. Harmon Killerbrew is buried, which is a little outside of Boise. And I, I hit him. Uh, I was I was doing a West Coast trip, and I had just come all the way up California. California is probably the state with the most. The uh, Chicago and New York are the two cities with the most. But in, in terms of statewide, California was the state with the most. And I had just done this really long road trip up the coast of California, and uh, I still had two more to get in Washington. But before I could go to Washington, I had to take this side jog over to Payette, Idaho, 
to get a Harmon Killebrew, which was, you know, it added essentially a day and a half onto the trip. So there were a number of states where there was only one person buried, but in terms of which state had the most, yeah, California had, especially when you add in that I did a number of the symbolic photos in California. I did like Bob Lemon and Sparky Anderson. There was another California one I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. But, you know, once you added in the the guys who were actually buried there and then the guys that I took symbolic photos of, I think there was probably about 25 in California, which was the biggest state by far. You know, I noticed that in, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle is born in Oklahoma, but he's buried in Texas, which kind of surprised me. And yeah, he's, me too. Uh, yeah, it's up in, a, uh, I guess, a... Not a mausoleum, or maybe a mausoleum. Yeah, yeah, that's a mausoleum. He's got a niche inside a mausoleum. Right, and there's a hand holding the ball. You can't be, <laughs> you can't be taking a picture and holding the ball. So I know you had help. Tell us about your helper. There are oca- there are occasional random hands that show up in the pictures because sometimes the the stones were you know ninety degrees and there was no way to set it. I was like a mausoleum, for example, were always killers for me because there's not necessarily a way to stage it. That one is particularly fun for me because because it was in Dallas, right? Mickey Mantle, yes, is an Oklahoma boy, but his business was based out of Dallas and, and that was where he was living when he died and it's where he was buried. And I, I, I went on that visit with a former student of mine. Like I mentioned, I worked at CUNY. I work at CUNY. And uh, one of my former students was living in Dallas. She was from Dallas uh, and she was living there and she joined me to visit Mickey Mantle's grave. And that, that visit was uh, a fascinating visit for me. That visit helped shape the course of the book, quite frankly. Um, because when I got home and wrote about the trip to Texas, I started writing in a different way than I had written the re- what I had written previously to that. And I liked what I did so much that I kind of went back and, and redid a bunch of stuff. But I enjoyed that trip in particular because uh, I had uh, that, that student's name was Casey. And Casey had just directed a show for me. I used to uh, produce this summer festival at, at Queens College. And uh, just the year before, two years before, Casey had directed a production of a Stephen Sondheim musical called Assassins, which is a musical about the successful and would-be assassins in American history. John Wilkes Booth, Charles <laughs> Coteau, Lee right. Harvey Oswald. And the, cl- the big climactic scene of the show is all of the other assassins from history and the future, because John Hinckley's there too, converging on Lee Harvey Oswald in the Texas School Book Depository to convince him to assassinate JFK and make himself famous. And I was literally in Dallas for Mickey Mantle when I met up with Casey, who had just directed the show for me. So, you know, when we were done getting Mickey's picture, we went over to Dealey Plaza and and got some photos there too. And it, it sparked this realization for me that those two people, Mickey Mantle and JFK, were very significant figures in my parents' history. My, my, Mickey Mantle was my father's hero and JFK was my mother's. Uh, and I had never, you know, it was one of those moments where it seems dumb to me now. But before I made the trip, I didn't make a connection that that was going to be something significant to me in any way. I just thought, oh, I'll get Mantle's picture and that's neat. I'll go over and get, you know, pictures from Dealey and that'll be fun. But when I was doing it, it sparked this thing into me, realized that these were two individuals who shaped my, my parents' childhoods. And that, that is what sort of shaped that chapter. And, you know, the book that you read now sort of grew from that. Talk about one that in Kansas City you took of, uh, of, Satchel, of Satchel Page, looking at his mm-hmm. photo and humongous stone. 
sayings yeah. on on uh, how to stay young. Yeah. That must have it's been rules fascinating. For, it's rules for living. Yeah, rules Satch for living. Rules for, yeah, I, Satch is a fun story in that um, he used to have one of those very simple stones. His stone just used to be his name and then his dates, and his dates were a question mark, and then 1982, the year he died. And that was it. That was the whole stone. You can still see that stone if you're down there at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, which just reopened recently. That, that stone is on display there. You can still see that one. But it was replaced years later by this giant stone, which has all sorts of information about Satch and his career. And like you said, his, his rules for staying young and, uh, and information about his wife, La Homa. And it, it's, it's, it's rather epic and substantial. And it It's significant because it is Satchel, and of course his fame came in his time in the Negro Leagues. And so many of the gravestones of the Negro League players are either those very, very basic ones that tell you almost no information, or they're military-issued stones. There were a number of Negro Leaguers who were in the military, so they got got the, the ones the government will give you if you're a vet. But, you know, most of the Negro Leaguers had very modest stones. You know, Josh Gibson's is, I don't know, it's probably about a foot and a half long by about eight inches tall, and it's ground flush, and all it says is Josh Gibson, his dates, and a legendary ball player, and that's it. Satch's has got a, a novel written on right. those. And then if you go uh, across the state to St. Louis, Cool Papa Bell is buried in St. Louis, and he also has... You know, you can read his stone for an hour and a half and not read all of it. His family put a lot of information on his stone, too. So it was interesting seeing these two giants of the game and how it it compared with a lot of the other Negro leaguers. Oscar Charleston had a a military stone, right? Yeah, he just got a new one, though. They just gave Oscar a new one that's, you know, one of those ones with lots of info on it that someday I will make a point of going to visit. I'm taking a little break from visiting uh, dead Hall of Famers for a while. But, but when I get back to it, I want to check out Oscar's new one because it, it, it looks quite impressive. Right. There's a picture that's not in the book because he's not in the Hall of Fame, but we think he should be. He's mm-hmm. buried in Brooklyn. You know him, Gil Hodges. Oh. He, he should be in the Hall of Fame. And he should be in this book. Uh, that's um, my feeling, at least. I, 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 I was anticipating you saying something like that. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you must have known uh, that Jeff would also uh, make a comment about Mariano Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> he has a, a love-hate relationship. But, well, maybe take out the love uh. <laughs> relationship. I, I, I do want to ask you about a couple more living uh, Hall of Famers. We had on on our show Brad uh, Uchlian, who went on the, the Wax Pack. Uh, who, oh, the uh, Wax Pack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who, who uh, obviously part of the Pandemic Book Club, as are you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, when he was trying to uh, meet with Carlton Fisk, and he was very, uh, not very welcoming. Yeah. Did you have the same experience? Well, you know, the thing is, is someone has pointed out the Fisk thing to me before, uh, because I was able to get the photograph of Carlton Fisk. Brad and I were asking for very different things. Brad was asking for a full interview. If you've read his book, uh, which I have, and it's very good. But what he wants is an actual sit-down interview with right. him. And I... I wanted 30 seconds of their time. So it was a much easier 
get for me. You know, I, the bigger challenge for me was just sheer volume, right? Brad photographed the 14 guys that were in a pack of baseball cards in the open and I had 323 to photo. So that was my challenge. Right. Um, but I, I wasn't asking for quite as much from the players as Brad was because I just wanted a photograph. The photograph of Fisk, the funny story that goes with the photograph of Fisk is if you look at the picture, well, there's two, two funny parts of the picture is Typically, when I took the photos, the guys were sitting behind tables. So the camera angle typically always has this sort of like down point to it. I, you know, I tried to get level with them and do that. Fisk was standing. Uh, he was walking by me when I gave him the wrap and he took the ball from me. And so I took the picture and you can see I'm not a tall man. Um, so you can see that I'm looking up at Carlton as I'm taking that picture, which makes me laugh every time I look at it. But the other part of the, the Carlton story that makes me laugh is that he's not really smiling in my picture. He, he looks kind of like he's grimacing, like I've made him go to work by taking this photograph. But, but what happened almost immediately after that is I was at that particular signing with a, a, a female friend of mine, a woman friend of mine, who is a huge Red Sox fan. And she was there in her Red Sox gear all dolled out. And when she asked for the photograph, he gave her a great big smile and he picked her up and <laughs> lifted her up in the air and gave her this big bear hug and... It made me laugh. <laughs> That's funny. So, Ralph, I, I, I'm not giving anything away with what I'm about to say, because your book is one of those that I, I like to refer to and, and enjoy a lot, because it doesn't have to, you don't have to read it in order. No. You could skip around. And, and it's great if you want, if you have a few minutes and you want to read a couple pages. And this, you don't have to worry that you're skipping anything. But the ball itself, your intent was that that ball was going to go into the Hall of Fame on display. Of course, there was no money involved. You wanted to just donate it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was. I didn't mention that part of the story when I was describing at the beginning to you guys what, what the idea of the project was. But yes, that was my hope when I was done taking all the photographs, was to donate it to the Hall of Fame and have it become part of their collection. I Like I said, you know, making theater, my career is around making art that is specifically for people to come and look at. You know, you don't make theater to do it in your living room. You do it so that an audience comes and sees it. Right. Uh, and I didn't want to make this thing that was just going to sit in my office. I wanted people to look at it. I wanted people to see it. So I, it was my intention to donate it to the Hall of Fame when I was all done. They said no. They declined. To the ball. Yes. <laughs> they did. They declined. Right. 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 Now, your, your initial feeling when they declined, you were probably, because I was surprised as well. I, so I was shocked and at the same time, not the hall of fame had made it pretty clear from the very beginning that the, that 2011 was the first time I met with anybody from the hall of fame about the project to ask them if uh, they would be willing to help me get access to the living guys. I had that point uh, by that point, I had put in about a year uh, into the project. I had about 50 pictures of the deceased guys. Uh, I had not photographed any of the living ones yet. And I I went to them to ask if they would help. And they said that they couldn't. There were privacy concerns. You know, one of the ways that they get the players to keep coming back every summer is that they do their best to insulate them from crazy fans. And, And I get that. Like I had, that made total sense to me and I had no problem with that. I reached out to them again over the years a couple of times to try and ask for a variation on that, even if they wouldn't put me in contact. 
with a, a living Hall of Famer? Could they maybe, you know, give, let the Hall of Famers know that I'm not dangerous and, you know, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that there is a nobility behind this project. And I will say that at one point, I actually did get to have a nice sit down with Jeff Idelson, who used to be the president of the Hall of Fame. I, I was there for uh, an induction weekend and I saw him getting a cup of coffee, waiting in line to get a cup of coffee at the stagecoach there. And I, I just shanghaied him. I said, hey, can I talk to you a little bit about this project? And he was very open and kind. He let me come to his office. We sat down for like a good 20 minutes, half an hour, told him all about it. He gave me permission to use his name. I said, you know, he said that if I were to write any of the Living Hall of Famers that I still needed, and at that point, I think I needed about eight, I could write them a letter and say that Jeff Idelson is aware of the project and gives it his full support. So I got individual support from him, but the accessions committee whom I, who decides which artifacts get into the Hall of Fame and which ones don't, I had spoken to them numerous times over the eight years. And I began to get a sense somewhere about halfway through the project that I, I didn't actually think they were going to take it. I, I have to admit that I was surprised. And at the same time, I was not. I feel like they actually did sort of give me some indication that they weren't going to. You know, there was a repeated emphasis on their part that this was not a Hall of Fame project, that the Hall of Fame was not behind this project, that it was my individual project and not theirs. And so that that repeated emphasis over the years sort of had it so that I was not particularly surprised when they said no. Ralph, we are so generous of your time. We really appreciate it. I have one or two more questions. My favorite Hall of Famer is Tom Seaver. How was your interaction with him? Tom, all right, so I am giving away more of the story. There were five Hall of Famers that I did not get to. I, it's sort of a detailed story as to why I didn't. I had to make a choice towards the end as to just how far I was going to push this. I had photographed the final deceased Hall of Famer. It took me eight years to get to all of the graves and photograph all of them. And I still had at that point six living guys left to go. And I had written all of them. I had written the teams, um, you know, uh, to, to see if they could maybe help me get access. I, I, I didn't get anywhere with any of that. Tom Seaver was a little different than the rest. His wife wrote me back. Nancy Seaver wrote me a lovely letter. This was probably about 2016, maybe 2015. She wrote me a letter explaining that Tom was not doing any more baseball-related appearances and it was not going to be possible for me to be able to get my photograph, but she wished me all the luck with everything else. And then, of course, it was about a year later, the family publicly announced that mm-hmm. um, that because of, uh, um, of Tom's uh, degenerating physical situation, uh, he wasn't really doing public appearances anymore. So it was very kind of Miss Seaver to write that, Mrs. Seaver to write that letter to me. I have it somewhere in my files. But for the other guys, I, I didn't hear back from anybody. And I, I, I got to be honest, I, I just got tired of chasing them. I, you know, it started to, at a certain point, it stopped feeling like this noble endeavor to uh, equate all of the Hall of Famers. And I just started feeling like one of those guys who sort of lingers outside of uh, the restaurant on Main Street during induction weekend, right. waiting for Reggie Jackson to come out so he can hijack him and, and get, you know, five autographs on his baseball bat. And, and that's not who I am. I'm, I'm not actually, you know, the, that, the weirdest, most challenging part of the project for me, none of the deceased, the, there were challenges to, to getting, uh, visiting all of the graves, but the, the getting the living guys was much more challenging for me because it's not in my personal nature to even go up to famous people and ask them for things. 
it, it's a, it's an ingrained habit that comes with the job. You know, mm -hmm. there are opportunities I've had working in the field that I work in to be in the same room as very very famous people, and it, it's not appropriate in the context of that job for me to go up for, to them and ask for you know a photograph. Of them. So it's become an, a, an ingrained trait of my own to not do that. I had to really step outside of my comfort zone to get it from those living guys. So once I had gotten to the point where I'd gotten everybody else and it was really down to just these six guys, it felt like it was time for me to call it. And, you know, I, I, so I took photographs. In the end, it was five of them. Um, the, one of the six who was still living when I decided I was done with the project was Willie McCovey, who passed as this was all happening, as I had decided I was done with it and I donated it, to, uh, I, I offered it to the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame was deciding if they wanted it. As all of that was happening, Willie McCovey died. So I took the ball and did one last trip the following summer and I went out and got the picture of the ball with Willie McCovey's, at Willie McCovey's grave. But there are five living guys who I did not photograph because I just... I didn't want to chase them down anymore. It started to feel a little weird and creepy. Right. Now you, and also Ralph, you know, you were mentioning the living uh, players, you know, the five were difficult to, to get, but you didn't have <laughs> such ease all the time with even the deceased ones, right? Didn't you? There were a couple, there were a couple that, that weren't so easy to get. One, you had to pretend you were a family member or something. Uh, Don, Don Drysdale, Don Drysdale is one of the symbolic photos because he was uh, cremated and his uh, ashes were put in a, in a niche in the same cemetery as I think Casey Stengel is buried in. And I decided that I was just going to take a picture of the ball at that niche where his, his ashes used to be. They aren't there anymore. They were there for a few years and the family came and collected them and did something with them. I don't know. But I decided that I wanted the picture there and I, I went to the main office and asked them if they could point me as to, you know, to help me figure out which niche was his because there's thousands of them. And they, they wanted to know if I was family and what I was doing. And it became very clear that if I had said, no, I'm just a guy with a baseball and wants to take a picture <laughs> of a thing that someone used to be in 15 years ago, uh, that I wasn't going to get anywhere. Um, so I told them that I was a, a family member who was passing through town. It wasn't often that I had to tell stories like that. Usually, <laughs> most of the time, the cemetery <laughs> offices were very, very helpful. And they were very excited that they're, you know, the, the cemeteries tend to know when there's a baseball Hall of Famer buried there. Right. Um, there were a few that didn't. But most of the time, they know when they have someone that significant who's buried mm -hmm. there. And, and the, they are more than willing to help direct me to the right place to get my photo. But I could tell, I just had a sixth sense that that one was going to be a little more challenging. So I became a Drysdale for an hour. Oh, my, my last question to you, since the Hall of Fame did not take the ball, will you continue to try to take pictures with the guys who are going in or who pass like uh, Roy Halliday? I So I, in the end, donated the ball to the baseball reliquary. Oh, okay. Really, uh, the baseball reliquary has it. If I wanted it back to do that, they would give it to me, I'm sure, uh, that, and, which is another advantage because once you donate something to the Hall of Fame, it's the Hall of Fame's. Right. Um, there would have been no way the Hall of Fame is giving that back to me to do anything with. So if I decide at some point in the future that I want to update it with the, with the classes that have happened since 2018, I'm sure I just give Terry a phone call and he'll give me the ball back and I could do that. But I have to be honest, that's not a thing that's really motivating me right now. Okay. I um. 
the, the hall ball was a fascinating education for me. I was a baseball fan who knew some history when I started. And I now believe that I have the legitimacy to tell people, uh, you know, 10 years later that I'm a baseball historian. And that's because of the hall ball and what I learned along the way. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But what it did do was it helped me see just how many fascinating and wonderful stories are out there about the history of baseball that have nothing to do with the Hall of Fame and the big names. You know, there's there's 330 some odd guys in the Hall of Fame and there's 20,000 people who played sure. uh, in organized baseball. So, you know, those other 19,700 stories are out there waiting to be written about. And, and that's what I'm working on now. That's what's next is to look at some of the stories of those lesser known folks. So maybe at some point, you know, 20 years down the line as a retirement project, I'll decide I want to update it with those 20 years and I'll, I'll get the ball back into it. But it's not, it's not a thing on my radar that I, or anything that I'm feeling any compulsion to do. Well, the book is fascinating. Where can people pick up the book and can, uh, give us all that information? They can get it at all places they normally get a book. The uh, uh, Amazon was out of stock for a while, but Amazon is back in stock now. If you would prefer to not support Jeff Bezos' empl- uh, evil empire, um, <laughs> the easiest place to go is actually just the publisher, McFarlandBooks.com. Um, you can buy the book directly from them. And if your fans out there, if your folks are interested in a signed copy, they can just ask me directly. You can find me on Twitter at, at Ralph Carhart. And, you know, just reach out to me. And if you want a signed copy, I'm more than happy to sign one and uh, stick it in the mail. And I also like to say that you're part of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. And I know I on that site, there's a link yes. where you can actually buy the book as well. So yes, support you, them can, as- you can get the book. Yeah, you can get the book there, too, through their bookshop. It's a little more expensive there. We're trying to figure out why there's there's something about the book uh, bookshop not getting the normal publisher discount. So I'm working with McFarland now to correct that. So, you know, if, if the $6 difference is uh important to you you know i want you to be aware of that but if it's not if the six bucks doesn't matter to you getting it through the the pandemic baseball book uh, club bookshop is a great way to do it because you know it helps support the pandemic club which i think is a noble endeavor that that you know should be supported it is that's a, we we're happy to support all the authors let me just say okay i am gonna just gush for a moment <laughs> this book if you like baseball and you like history, you will find every single page has something interesting with this book. There is no doubt about it. This is a great book. And you spent many years of your life writing it, going in, you know, there's a, you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this book. Literally, there were times I bled. <laughs> some, of those guys are, some of those guys are buried behind rose bushes. Like <laughs> we appreciate it. Because, you know, it's easy for us. We could just get the book and, and read it. But what you put into this, just great stuff. And, and, and the things that I'm learning and just, and this is something I think you'll go all back to constantly. Uh, I really, I, I hope so much. Yeah. I really hope that, that, that our listeners that are big baseball fans and even, you know what, it's also, it's, History, I mean, obviously it's baseball history, but, but some of it is, you know, not everyone's a player. You know, there were, there were people that designed the game, the umpires. There were people mm-hmm. behind the scenes or whatever, and they're in it. And I, I just think, well done. Thank you. It was, Very I, it, was, good. it was important to me that I write a book that 
certainly had enough interesting baseball history in it that it would appeal to my baseball historian friends. But I also wanted to write a book that was also more accessible to average fans. I, I didn't, I didn't want people to feel like they needed a PhD in baseball to be able to read my book. I wanted, uh, you know, your, your more ordinary fan to, to get something out of it too. And, and I hope, I think, I, I've struck a pretty nice balance of, of giving people both. That's a wonderful book. Thank you very much for your time, Ralph. We really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And people go out and buy this book. It's well worth it. Thank you so much, guys. It was great talking to you. Thank you. That was very, very good, Jeff. Very good. <laughs> it was so good. It was good. Jeff, can I do something? I need to do something for the episode. Can I do something for you? Please do. I don't know. Igor and, and Dracula. and Jeff, can you, can you uh, do a scary voice or something for us, please? The, the, the fans are clamoring for it. My voice is scary enough. That, that is kind of scary. <laughs> so, Len, you know, you actually did a little research, and you found out there was a Hall of Famer who was actually born on Halloween. Yes, yes. Thank, thank goodness for the internet. Not only was he born on Halloween, he's, a baseball, he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he's also in another Hall of Fame. The thing is, he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame and he never played baseball. But he's in the Football Hall of Fame because he played football. So that is really an interesting one. His name is Cal Hubbard. That's right. Robert, but, Cal Hub Robert Calvin Hubbard. And he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame because he was an umpire. One of only a select few umpires in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. What, he was the fifth umpire to go into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Jeff, he umpired for 15 years. That's true. He umpired for 15 years. Had to give it up because he was on a hunting trip and a ricocheting shotgun pellet damaged his eye. But he went on to become the American League Supervisor's umpires for another 17 years. Do you want to read his plaque? I'd be happy to. Robert Cal Hubbard, umpire, American League, 1936 to 1951. One of the most respected, efficient, and authoritative umpires in the history of majors. Gentle giant boasted special knack for dealing with situations on field. Worked four World Series and three All-Star games. Served as league's assistant umpire supervisor in 52, as umpire supervisor from 1953 to 1969. I wonder if anybody kicked dirt on him. Probably uh, would not be wise to do that. You remember some of those great Earl Weaver? And, yeah. Uh, was, and Billy Martin. Billy Martin, right? They, they Luke would just, Nella. Right. They would just, they love to just kick the dirt on the umpire. And then you know, before, before we get to Chad Ward, you know, there was, there's a baseball player also born on Halloween who should be in the Hall of Fame. I always advocated for him to be in the Hall of Fame. He should be there. He's known as the crime dog, Fred McGriff. It's a shame he's not there. He never got in with the writer's ballot. I have no idea why. The man hit 493 home runs. And consider this. He played during a couple of work stoppages. So you know he would have gotten to that magical number 500. Right. No, one, no suspicion of, of, of performance handling drugs. Hanson drugs. Played for winners, played in World Series, 
he should be in the Hall of Fame, and I have no idea why he's not. Yeah, well, you just answered my question because I was going to say, why do you think he's not in the Hall of Fame? I have no, no idea. You know, he's been on all-star teams. He's been top 10 MVPs, Silver Slugger. He, he's just an all-around and a team leader. He's played for Toronto, Atlanta, San Diego, the club for a couple of years, and, and the Dodgers. But, but really, he's most known for being on Atlanta and, and Toronto. And he, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, what was the closest that he got to the Hall of Fame? What was the highest percentage? Do you know? He got, yeah. In 2019, he got 39.8% of the vote. Was that a shame. That was his last year on the ballot. It was. Five All-Star games. You know, All-Star game MVP. That's a tremendous player. And, and why he didn't get the love from the Riders, I will never, never know. You know, I don't remember him having... Uh, any any incidents with with writers because you know sometimes the writers maybe they you know keep somebody out for a while but he a great player I mean, he seriously should be in the hall of fame you're right it's going to take the veterans committee to put him in one he's day. had six years of 30 home runs and over 100 rbis in a couple more years he got close to 100 rbis but hitting 30, 30 home runs and he, you know, a couple of years, he only had 28 and 27 home runs, but still had over 100 RBIs. Okay. He should be in the Hall of Fame. What was his career average? 284. Not too shabby. Okay. No, that's not too shabby. As everybody likes to, what was his war? Uh, his war was, I believe, was like 52 point something. So, it, you know, not bad. <laughs> Interesting. I, I think that was... That's one of those big oversight. It used to be that you had, you were on the ballot, it was 15 years, and they reduced it to 10. Right. I wonder if he had more, did his percentage go up every year, or was, was, this, was this last year his highest, or did, had he ever done any better? It actually was his highest. It, it's interesting, though, because in, in 2013, he was on 20.7%. Then in 2014, he was only on 11%. It really went down, <laughs> and then came back up. Doesn't you make know, any sense at all. Yeah. That, that's that whole Hall of Fame voting where I, I just don't understand it because if, if a writer th- – well, this year he's a Hall of Famer, but next year he's not, what, what happened? Did he get less RBIs? Did he get less home runs? Right. You know, was there all the spots on the ballot – we're now being filled by someone else that was eligible that year. I doubt it. So what made him, you know, drop off like that? I don't know. I have no idea, but on baseball reference, they have something called similar batters. So the top 10 similar batters to Fred McGriff, Willie McCovey, Willie Stargell, Jeff Bagwell, Frank Thomas, Billy Williams, all in the whole thing. Don't get it. it. Don't get it. Hopefully, Veterans Committee will write that wrong. That's one of those, you know, the, the Veterans Committee sometimes is what, what it kind of like your cronies, you yeah. know, putting you in. But in this case, it's they they need to write a wrong because absolutely, he, yeah, he should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. I wonder what uh, our listeners think. You know, give us a call 516 855 8214. Give us a voicemail. Let us know. What, do you think Fred McGriff should be in the Hall of Fame? Let us know. And as a matter of fact, our next guest has a couple of interesting stories, not to do with Fred McGriff, 
but about a couple of Hall of Famers that he met. Oh, and they are fantastic stories. So listen to Chad Ward. Baseball and barbecue listeners, welcome. We have, I'm going to give this man an intro, but any intro that I give him is just not going to be good enough, but that's all right. We'll get to know him as we go along. If we had a bucket list of people on it, barbecue, and who knows, maybe baseball. I don't know. As we go along, it's possible. (laughs) I'm learning so much about this guy. But if we had a bucket list, this gentleman would definitely be on it. Traeger, Whiskey Bent Barbecue, Sports, College Ball, Dan Patrick Show. I could go on and on, but I'd rather he do the talking. So without further ado, and I know Jeff loves that expression, without further ado, we welcome to the Baseball and Barbecue Airwaves, none other than Chad Ward. Chad, thank you and welcome. Hey, thank you guys too, man. Looking forward to being on the show. And two of my favorite things and two things I've been doing my whole life, barbecue and baseball. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. I got to tell you, Chad, you are, you don't even realize it, but you, you are curing a bit of depression that I got today. We are, we've been doing this now, December will be three years. We're growing. We've had some phenomenal guests on, but every once in a while we do get rejected. And today we were rejected by none other than one of the best, Aaron Franklin. Oh, really? Yes. Now, it wasn't Aaron that sent us the rejection. It was somebody who, I guess, works with him. But we got rejected. PR firm or whoever, yeah. Right. And it was, but it was a very nice rejection. We understood. We understood why. But I said, you know what? Doesn't matter. Because tonight, we have Chad Ward. So you are the cure for the depression. Hey, (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things. You know, Aaron amazing dude great guy you ever get a chance to meet him just a really really down-to-earth dude at the same time i don't care how much success i have i'll never have a pr firm if chad ward wants to go on and talk he's <laughs> all right so jeff i'm gonna just say right away i'm gonna turn over to you because you know that i could i'll never stop so uh, that's right i'm gonna get some of chad ward's backstory so chad tell us how you entered the uh, world of barbecue so I like to say I got the tongs at an early age. I love my father to death, and we'll talk about him more, I'm sure, as this podcast goes on and we get into baseball and some of those things. Great man, hard worker, distilled an amazing work ethic in me. Not a great driller. A lot of dads, Saturday afternoon barbecues that turn into Saturday night pizza nights. <laughs> um, so... I just started cooking and, and just, you know, learning how to, to do things, you know, nine or 10 years old. And I just liked it. You know, I liked it. And, and just at that time, I didn't know, but I just liked people being around the grill, people hanging out, like family coming together. And then obviously go off, getting a, into high school sports, college sports, and quit playing college baseball after my freshman year. Moved in with a couple of buddies. And every Saturday, we just cooked. Like, you know, we just had friends over, and I always say, I, I, at that time, I cut my teeth on everything that was about 10 minutes from going out of date. So, if it was in the discount bin at the meat market, that's what we were having for lunch or dinner on Saturday. 
and I started on a. You guys remember the old Sunbeam grills? Sure. Mm -hmm. I had yep. one that all the innards, all the gas innards were burnt out of it. So I ripped all those out, got some flanging and some JB weld, closed up the middle of it, got a drill, drilled some holes in it, and turned it into a charcoal cooker. Just cooked and cooked and cooked on it. And that was all through college. And I just loved, like, our driveway would have 40 people in it, me with this crappy repurposed grill. Everybody was having a great time, enjoying the food, this and that. Well, then that whole crazy thing called graduation happens. And you actually have to go do something with your degree. Yeah. And, um, I ended up becoming a software consultant along with one of my roommates that I had lived with through college. And for people that don't know it's a software consultant, you pretty much leave on Sunday night, Monday morning, and you get home Friday night if you're lucky. So you got two days and you turn around and you do it all back over again. So on Saturdays, I had no desire to have my heathen buddies over. Mm. I could clean up all day Sunday and then fly back out Sunday night or Monday. I don't know, maybe like six months go by and Jared and I were working the same project. That was my roommate from back in college. And we ended up at my house on a Saturday night because we got home on Friday and got to get all our washing and stuff done. So we're like, oh, dude, we can actually hang out Saturday Maybe have us hang over Sunday mornings. We don't have to fly until Monday at 11 a.m. Oh, cool. We actually get to hang out for a night. And, uh, and I said, man, I said, I would love to find something that's got the, the whole band back together. And we talked about a couple of things. I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. What about barbecue competitions? Like, we've got a big one here in Lakeland, my hometown, Lakeland, Florida. That at that point, it had been going on for 16, 17, no, well, more like 10, 12 years. And I was like, well, dude, we'll just, like, find two or three barbecue contests a year. We can all get together, cook, have a good time. He's like, oh, man, I love that. He's like, well, you know, my grandfather just died, and we had been cooking on this big smoker of his that we inherited. So, like, oh, perfect. We'll find a contest before Lakeland so we can kind of fine-tune our magic. And long story short, we go to a contest in Kissimmee, Florida, which if you guys don't know where Kissimmee, Florida is, it's kind of the, house, the, the mouse house. Right, right. Disney World. Right. And we were in a, a right outside of Rodeo Arena, and we entered the amateur division. There was nine teams. We finished seventh and lost to a troop of Boy Scouts. <laughs> but there was something about going back out there that fed my the competition side of me, but also the camaraderie. Like all the other teams, they knew we were newbies. I mean, we came in there like the damn Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, we had three trucks full of stuff, sinks, pop-up tents, grills. And, and you can see these guys coming in like with one trailer, perfectly streamlined, like, this is what I need. But it just intrigued me about it. And that kind of kicked off. I've cooked now 140-ish contests across 28 states, you know, seven-time state champion, you know, world champion in chicken, it, it, it just, there was something about that environment and what I like doing that I, I never thought this would be my career. Like, I feel like I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world because I literally get to put my feet on the ground every day and do what I love. And that's when you do something that you love, you never work a day in your life. Wow. Agreed. And, and, I and, love that quote. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure as we get further into the interview, we'll get into you know some of the breaks I got in my career, but, 
it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes you get a little like, man, you're so lucky to have this. You're so lucky to have that. And it's like, man, I just worked. And when the door opened, I made sure to keep my foot in it until they told me to take my foot out, you know? And, and, and yeah, but, but it's been, you know, it's an amazing, amazing world of barbecue. You know, it's funny you mentioned the Sunbeam. When I got married, that was the first grill that, that we owned. It's not the best. Well, I don't even know if the company's around anymore, but I guess we're never going to get them as a sponsor. But the sauces would just, you know, the holes in the, in the tubes, the sauces would burn those, those tubes out oh, yeah. so quickly so that you'd have massive fire in one section pouring out because you'd have all the holes you know, that, that had the, you know, that were, yeah. right. And then in another section, you'd have no fire at all. So I know what you're talking about. And yeah. I never thought of making it a, a, a charcoal grill. That was a great idea. Well, that's kind of the redneck in me, Leonard. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that means ingenuity, then you know yeah. what? I, I wouldn't mind being a redneck myself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so uh, Chad, you, you you said you've been in competitions what twenty eight states around the nation. Yeah, so twenty eight states. I um, so I started competitions back in 07. As I got more involved with Traeger, I would say I started lightening up in maybe twenty eighteen. Like like literally now, I just do mostly the Lakeland contest. I do it every year because it's just my hometown, and I've got a you know I've got a barbecue store here. You know, and, just, and it's my one chance a year traveling 200, 250 days a year to see all my friends. They all know, oh, Chad's going to be a pig fest. So we can go out there and I usually do a good job of pub- publishing, you know, what space we are and this and that. And I get to see a bunch of people that I only see once a year. But now, I mean, mostly cook the world championships. You know, obviously this year being different. Mm. We cook the Houston Livestock Radio, Memphis in May, uh, the American Royal. You know, those three we do every year, and then I've got Lakewood and maybe one or two others sprinkled in. So not running the circuit like I used to because of all the commitments as the director of barbecue marketing and spokesperson for Traeger. Before your relationship with Traeger and you went on these competitions, what kind of grill would you use? Would you use smokers? Did you use gas? Did you use uh, charcoal? What would you do? So when it comes to barbecue competitions, you can't use gas. That's the, the one, one, can't do it. So for me, I grew up on a grill called a Stumps. So a Stumps is kind of like, if you think about it, it looks like a really, really well-insulated fridge. There's a couple different styles of it. There's a charcoal maze, which is what I cooked on, which is just, you know, you just create a charcoal maze, you put your wood on top, you start it at one end, and it runs through the other. And you've got an air valve, and, and that's, a, you know, and it's a great grill uh, for competition. So then I, I went and we built our own gravity chute, uh, Southern Bread Whiskey Bent Smokers. We built our own gravity chute. So kind of same kind of body, but on the right-hand side, you fill it up with charcoal and wood chunks and then put some wood chips underneath in the drip pan and you light it from the bottom and it just takes in air and burns. Another great alternative. And then I got introduced to pellet grills. And I was kind of like, man, these are really interesting. And the first time I cooked on a pellet grill, I cooked ribs on it at a competition. And I took first place ribs. And I was like, okay, next competition, I cooked ribs and chicken on it. 
scored scored top five in both. But I was always looking for like, okay, these bigger, longer cooking meats like pork and brisket. What do I got to do to get the same finished product that I'm getting off a of charcoal and wood smoker off a of pellet smoker? I mean, I would, if I wasn't on the road, I test cook every day, kind of in the height of my competition when I was running 25, 30 weekends a month. And I found a way to take pellet grills and get that same flavor and consistency out of them every week. And they're just so much easier to cook, cook on. I mean, and so that's kind of my progression of what I used to cook on to what I cook on now. All right. So the pellet grill and your association with Traeger, let, let's go there. I'm fascinated with pellet grills as someone who loves, I, I love using the smoker. And then, you know, all of a sudden we, you know, there's all these companies with pellet grills, but Traeger, and, and I'm not trying to, it sounds like now I'm kissing your ass, but Traeger is everywhere. You're in the big box stores. You're, you're on, I mean, you're like the number one name in pellet grills, right? How did you get associated with Traeger? When did you start using a Traeger? And just tell us, tell us some. Yeah, about it. Let, let's go a little bit of the background of Traeger. Yeah. You know, Traeger was the originator of the wood fire grill, the, the, the pellet grill. I mean, that was, they were, they were the, you know, Joe Traeger went out created the market, took what he knew from wood pellet stoves, applied it to a wood pellet grill. So fast forward about 23 and a half years later, Joe Traeger had sold the company off to a investment firm. And being from the software business, I understand there's two types of investment firms. There's investment firms that are going to lead you for every dollar you have, invest nothing, and there's investment firms that are going to invest a ton and try to blow a brand up. So the first one was the first description. They saw, oh, this is a great brand. We're going to try to extract as much money out of it as we can. Mm-hmm. Don't know how we'll invest in it, blah, blah, blah. And, and went down so many different paths. Well, that was about the time that I started my store. And when I was looking for a pellet grill, I remember a trigger guy came in and talked to me. And I'm like, there is no way in hell I would do business with these people. And maybe about a year to a year and a half later, I find out the trigger's been acquired by an investment group led by Jeremy Andrus, Denny Bruce, all people that have been are or were executives in our company now. I remember I had just sent in a note that said, hey, you know, I hear about your change in management. I'd be really interested in learning more about where you guys are going and what you're doing. And somehow it gets to the VP of specialty sales, a guy named Luke Edgar. Great guy. I also sent a link back then, like kind of before podcasts and all that stuff was cool. I did a radio show about competition barbecue every Tuesday night. And I was one of the first ones when Facebook came out with live video, they reached out and said, hey, do you want to be a beta guy? Like, sure, would love to be. So I'm doing my two-hour competition barbecue show on Facebook. I had sent Luke the link in my just kind of canned email. And so just so happens on Tuesday night, he clicks on the show and they're still in the office. And he's like, holy crap, man, this guy like knows everybody in the competition barbecue. Like Myron Nixon was just on his show. And now he's got Darren Worth on his show. Like, and he's talking to him like they're best buds. So he goes and grabs the senior vice president of sales and marketing, Denny Bruce. He's like, Denny, you got to come see this guy. We're looking, at, we're looking for somebody that could really kind of spearhead the brand from a barbecue point of view. 
he goes, he goes, he goes, just watch. And so he, he goes, me and Denny watched for like five minutes, and then he's like, you're right, man. Like, this guy is the real deal. He goes, and, and Luke goes, oh, by the way, he's probably going to drink a 175 of Crown Royal in a two-hour show. Like, <laughs> if, if that's not on brand, we don't know what <laughs> and, um And so literally a week later, I, I talked to Denny Bruce, and he goes, hey, I'm going to be in Florida. I want to come and talk to you at your store. So Denny comes in. And it's towards the end of the day. It's like 4.30 because I wanted to have dinner with him. So I said, hey, make me your last stop and we'll talk and have dinner and this and that. And so he walks in, brings a, about a $200 bottle of High West whiskey from Utah. And he walks in and he goes, finally, a bleeping barbecue store. Like, I have arrived. Show me. Like, he's like, I've been looking at stores all day that carry our products, but they're not a hardcore barbecue store he's like they're pulling patty or they're this and that he's like you walk in here and anybody that loves barbecue loves this store and i'm like well thank you that's what i tried to build you know so comes in i tour him around and um my office is kind of on the left side of the building and our checkout's on the right side of the building so i just yell at my guy danny was working i said so guys so we're gonna break into this whiskey and drink it together right and he's like it's your bottle whatever you want to do i was like I prefer to drink with y'all. I said, Dan, will you bring me three cups? And Danny kind of looks at me and goes, we don't, we don't have any silver cups. And I'm like, well, bring me three bottles of water. And this is going to kind of lead back to that redneck ingenuity here, Leonard. <laughs> I so I, I, Danny gives everybody a bottle of water. I said, whoever finishes their bottle of water first gets the first drink of whiskey. Well, I have this gift of I can drink a 16.9-ounce bottle of water and about two blood gloves, just gunk, gunk. So I drink mine, pull my pocket knife out as I'm finishing it, hold it up like this, and cut the bottom out of my water bottle. And it falls on the desk, and I take the whiskey, and I pour myself a whiskey. And at that point, I think Denny Bruce was sold. He was like, what was that? <laughs> and I'm like, I told you, whoever finishes their bottle of water first gets the first one. Like, we're out of cups. You got to make your own. <laughs> and, and we just hit it off from there. And, and, and Denny stepped back and told me, without me telling him every reason I didn't want to do business with Traeger before the new ownership, Right. he laid out for me, here's what we're changing, Chad. And I said, hey, man, send me a couple of grills. Let me cook on them. You know, let, let, me, let, me, let me really get this new product in my hand and see what I think about it. And I was sold. I heard about the vision. I heard about, and so he said, "Hey, we'd love to bring you on as a uh, you know, spokesperson, ambassador." And so I kept doing my software job. And about two years go by, he says, "Hey, you know, loving what you're doing." Da, 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 da. Well, I end up. I always told the trader folks, I said, "Look, if you're ever in Florida, you buy the booze. Y'all come to my house. I got two spare bedrooms here. Y'all don't even have to get a hotel." And I'll cook dinner, and we'll just all hang out. You don't have to stay in a hotel. I know what it's like to stay in a hotel all the time. This is kind of one of your breaks. And one night, a guy, Sebastian and Jonathan Bird, that was at our first meeting, uh, are here. Sebastian, we call him Seabass. He goes, hey, man, have you heard about this uh, this new job that we're hiring for? I was like, what's that? He's like, director of barbecue marketing. And I'm like, no, I haven't heard about it. Why has anybody called me? He goes, you've got to read the job description. So I read it, and I'm like, dude, it's me. 
And so the next morning I texted Denny Bruce, our senior vice president of sales and marketing, said, hey man, I got five, if you got five minutes, call me. And Denny's an early riser and a late going to bed. I mean, Denny's, a, he's now the CEO of Dickens. So Denny calls me and goes, hey man, what's up? I said, dude, why did you not tell me about this director of barbecue marketing job? He's like, dude, I cannot pay you what you're making in the software business. I said, Denny, I said, it's not about that. Like, not married, no kids. Like, I want to do what I love. And I love this brand and I love barbecue. And let's figure it out. He goes, well, you saw at the bottom where it said must live in Salt Lake City, right? I said, well, that's my second question is how hard of a sell is that? And he goes, well, you know how you said that job description sounded like you? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, well, I walked into our director of HR's office and said, the perfect fit for this job is Chad Ward. I just can't afford him. Let me tell you who he is. And he goes, that literally was the job description. He goes, so Jeremy, our CEO, Jeremy Angus, amazing leader. He's the one that wants everybody to be based in Salt Lake City. I said, Denny, can you just get me in the room? And he said, yeah, sure. So let's say four weeks later, and I've been doing, I've probably done 15, 20 barbecue shop classes for Traeger at this time. Then he goes, all right, man, we're going to bring you out this week. He's like, bring you in on Monday. Have you meet with the team on Tuesday, meet with Jeremy. He's like, you know, since you're in town, do you mind doing a shop class at HQ on Wednesday and Thursday? <laughs> I'm like, typical Denny, man. He's going to squeeze the whole week out of you. You know what I mean? But love him for it. I'm like, absolutely, man. Sign me up, book the tickets, let's do it. And I went out there and met with the team. And I think what was confident to Jeremy about me was I had been working remote. You know, I mean, I've been doing it my whole career. And, you know, here's the ways I can stay in tune with the team, this and that. And now we look at it six years later after what we've done the last six months. And it's like, we can all work remote. We've all figured it out. You know what I mean? Right, of course. From that point on, man, I, I you know, I went into Traeger. I was director of barbecue marketing and tasked with building out a team of ambassadors like Doug Shadden that you guys have had on the show of people that just leave, live, eat, and breathe Traeger and are great for the brand. And uh, man, I couldn't be happier. Like I said, I mean, I've been able to meet so many people and we built such a great team. That's that's how I got here. That's actually, so yeah, you have met a lot of great people. I want to talk to you about that. Let's just talk. You have delivered grills to some athletes, right? Yes, yes, a lot of athletes. And you've also been on the Dan Patrick Show. And, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. Jeff, so, this is someone, all I need to say is a name or a, we could just sit back because there's, you know, I, Chad, I, I go down the rabbit hole, you know, and plus, since we were supposed to do this interview a little sooner, I had extra time. So forget yeah. it. I, I researched you. <laughs> I know everything. So, but so the, the Dan Patrick Show thing happens out of so at Traeger we had never done any kind of mass radio marketing right? right so I think maybe six months a year into the job and Denny Bruce once again comes to me and says hey we're thinking about doing a deal with Dan Patrick no shoot no as an employee I was maybe two months into it I take that back and he goes hey we're thinking about doing this deal with Dan Patrick I want you to go to Milford Connecticut and cook for him and his guys and sell them on Traeger and this is a great story. It kind of sums up how me and Dan have became friends. Was it's a Friday afternoon, so they've had a long week, you know, shows Monday through Friday. 
And they decided we rented this Airbnb maybe seven minutes from the old studio that was above a, a Subway sandwich shop in Milford, Connecticut. I'm like, all right. So I, I put on a, a spread. Like, I got there two days early, prepped, like, cooked it. It was, you know, brisket, ribs, chicken, ton of sides. Like, it was probably two 18-hour days of getting this meal ready, which I'm not complaining about. Don't get me wrong, because Dan Patrick to me, Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter back in the day, Yes, I can tell you my dad spanked my butt two or three times for having my TV on the lowest volume you could, laying on my bed, like from me to you, trying to hear what they were going to open the show with. I mean, that's how much I love being a Keith back in those yeah, late, they had a great, late, late yeah. sports center days. Oh, yeah. Right, the golden years. Yeah. Yes, the golden years, yes. Sure. Before it became just the mothership. Right. Um, I'm like, man, I'm going to knock this guy's socks off. Denny gets there, you know, Saturday maybe – or, sorry, Friday, maybe 15 minutes where we serve at lunch. And I hear Dan's agent come by and go, hey, look, been a long week. Dan may stay 10 or 15 minutes. But he just wants to meet the team, have the food, see what the grill can do before we go down this road. And I hear this in earshot, and I'm like, no, that's a challenge. He ain't staying here just 15 minutes. So I decide I'm going to slice the brisket for everybody by order because it's not a big crowd, 10 people, you know. But I take it, I already cooked the burnt ends off the brisket, and I put them in the Yeti below me that I'm sitting on to slice brisket. So sure enough, everybody, you know, Dan, Dan, Agents, they all get their plates. I kind of open my Yeti and I look up. They're about halfway through their plate, and I kind of go up there and do the old Southern old boy. Oh golly shucks! I I forgot I had burn-ins in the cooler, boys. I, I don't know why I didn't put these out to serve y'all. And uh, he's like, "Where's the burn-in come from?" And I so I start talking to him about. It. He's like, "Chad, why don't you grab a seat? I want to hear your story." And so we sit down and we get to talking and this and that. And I get maybe five six minutes into it. And then he tells you later on, his agent goes, I don't know that I've ever heard Dan let somebody talk this long. Like, he's, like, he likes this guy. And then he's like, that's why we picked him for the job. Then he goes, maybe a minute later is when Dan stops you. And Dan goes, hey, Chad, hold that thought. I'll be right back. I'm going down to talk to my executive producer. Whether we do a deal with Traeger or not, you're coming on the show. Like, this is great. And I'm like, and, and think about me being such a damn fanboy. Like, my heart's beating. I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right. What's going on here? You know what I mean? And sure enough, we we just hit it off. And we decided, hey, Trigger's going to do the deal. And part of it, Dan said, he's like, hey, Chad's our guy at Trigger, right? Like, he's going to be not just our on-camera guy, but our, you know, guy that we deal with as a relationship, this and that. And then he's like, absolutely. We knew he was perfect for the job. And since then, I've cooked. You know, four Super Bowls with them, a couple of Pebble Beaches. Probably been up to the, the Old Man Cave three or four times, the New Man Cave three or four times. I mean, when they open the New Man Cave, you know, they're like, hey, Chad's got to come up and cook and christen it. You know what I mean? It, it's just been, a, from a personal point of view, an awesome relationship. But then we look at what Dan's done for Traeger, and that being our first kind of big media buy, been, we, we couldn't ask for a better partner. You know, Jeff, the next time uh, Chad – goes, he may need a couple of assistants. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> you guys aren't too far away. We're not proud. <laughs> I volunteer. <laughs> so which uh, athletes have you uh, delivered Traegers to? 
the first, you know, a, a, a lot of athletes, I would say the two that probably are the best fit for your show is the first one. And I got to give a thanks. My buddy Chow Belding the Foul Life TV I made an introduction to George Brett. And so uh, Liberty Grill George, and you want to talk about a guy that loves cooking. He, great dude. So go to George's. We get the grill there. We cooked the first day, so George's wife's out of town. He's like, hey, hope you don't mind. Had a bunch of Snake River Farms, Wagyu beef sent in, tri-tips, ribeyes, brisket. Like, we, we had a whole spread. Cooked that night, and then George was like, okay, well, and I think we cooked some lot. And it, well, let me go back to the first night. His wife's out of town. He's like, hey, invited like 10 or 12 buddies over. I'm like, cool, we got plenty of food. I think I may have cooked like one side dish, like Brussels sprouts or something. Everything else is just meat. You got to <laughs> one bed. And, and honestly, guys, no one ever made a plate. So I would take and pull the meat on, let it rest, cut it, and then set that cutting board in the middle of this big table that he had in his kitchen, island, and everybody would just pick and choose. Oh, another cutting board of meat. Here we go. You know, it was such a fun time. Wow. And then the next night, George takes us to uh, – Kaufman, we, we were in the the Royal Suite right behind home plate, and just a great guy. One thing I'll tell you about George Brett. So we, you know, if you go there, you've got Kaufman, you've got Arrowhead, and when you walk down the tunnel that ex-Hall of Famers can get into to get to the stadium, go right for the Royals, go left for the Chiefs. And I will tell you what, from the time we entered that tunnel, George Brett knew every janitor's name, every elevator assistant's name, not just them, their family, their kids. Like, he is just one of the most authentic dudes. The next day, we're at his house, and he's kind of giving me the grand tour of it. And I remember walking to his office, and I'm like, holy crap, this is an amazing office. World Series trophy, batting championship, you know, silver sluggers, gold gloves. It's like, oh, this is so unreal. It was just a great experience. So, you guys have any questions about George before I fast forward to the other one? <laughs> George, uh, I, I do have one question. I have one question. Did he ever get angry like he did in that pine tar game? No, he never got that angry. But I will tell you, great. So, in his office, I see a bat, and it's pine tarred up. Like, I'm looking at the bat, and I'm going, I think that's more pine tar than the Yankee game. <laughs> and so I said, George, I said, that's not the, he is not the pine tar bats in the Hall of Fame. He said, but what do you think about that bat? I said, that bat's got at least as much, if not higher pine tar than the Yankee game. He goes, yeah, about an inch and a half higher. He goes, and I played with it three quarters of the year. Wow. And, and I'm like, wow. You know yeah. what I mean? But couldn't be a sweeter dude. Probably text me two, three times a month, hey, I'm cooking this, hey, I'm cooking that, or just, hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, That's great. That's a match. That's so, a match. Next guy getting delivered a grill to is uh, Ken Griffey Jr. And I delivered one because Ken lives literally 45 minutes from me in Windermere here. As he likes to say, the the neighborhood that Tiger Woods made famous by hitting the hydrant there, that, that one terrible night for him. Delivered a grill to him. We kind of keep constant contact back and forth. 
I go to his house around Father's uh, the Friday before Father's Day of this year. He wanted to learn how to cook a hot and fast brisket. So instead of cooking a brisket at 225, 250 degrees, how can you take this Snake River Farms Wagyu brisket and cook it in four to five hours? And there's ways to do it. And we, uh, so I said, hey, I'm more welcome to come over, you know, more welcome to come over and cook it for it, you know, show you how to cook it. He's like, all right, man, no problem. And you got to think, I mean, Griffey was in my heyday. I graduated high school in 95. Like, he was the dude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He just, you yeah. know, respected the swagger, respected the way he played the game, 110% hustle, just an awesome, awesome guy. So I'm okay, you know, going to go over to the boyhood hero's house and cook hot and fast brisket for him. So we get the, you know, I trim it all up, show him. He trimmed one along with me. I season mine, he seasons his, and we get them on the grill. And he's like, so we got some time, right? I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, you know my documentary is coming out on MLB on Sunday, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you want a private screener? And I'll give you the voiceover. And I'm like, shut the front door. Like, <laughs> okay, this just got better. We, we keep, you know, we watch that. With how awesome was that? I wish MLB would start streaming it so other people could – could see it. I loved it. Just just the connection with him and his dad, and and what it meant to to Junior to play with his dad. And, you know, and the reason he went back to Cincinnati being because of his dad and the family and all that. I mean, it speaks volumes to a guy that I feel like in his twenty years in his career, he caught a lot of crap from the media. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and it's like I told him when we were talking about it, watching the documentary. I said. Ken, I think the problem is you set the bar this high. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. You know, interesting thing he told me, I think he said when he was in Seattle, he had two surgeries. When he was in Cincinnati, he had like 12 or 50. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. also when you play that kind of baseball, your body's going to have some wear and tear, this and that. But kind of some of the disdain he got from the media was totally uncalled for. We watched that. We're hanging out. And he's like, dude, let me show you my office. And so I'm like, yeah. And so we're touring the house and we walk in the office and I go, holy crap. Like you walk in that office, there's like six silver sluggers, nine gold gloves. And I just make the comment and I said, man, George Brett used to be my favorite baseball player's office. <laughs> Here's it is now. And he goes, well, why don't you call George and tell him? I said, I'll FaceTime him. <laughs> and so I FaceTime George. And he's like, hey, man, where you at? And I was like, man, I'm at another Hall of Famer's house just cooking some brisket. He's like, well, who's? And I said, well, first off, your office is no longer my favorite. It's the second thing. <laughs> this was my favorite. And I start painting around, and, you know, it's kind of a corner of the office. Then I get to all the silver sluggers and all the gold gloves. And you can see George is, like, calculating his head, like, whose house could this be? And then I turn around and there's Ken with his feet propped up on the desk. He's like, "Hey, George." <laughs> and, oh, that's great. <laughs> and so I'm like, "How fun is this?" And then, like three weeks ago, George is on Dan Patrick's show and retells the story. So that's great. But both just amazing guys love Traeger and they love barbecue. We actually did a private class for Ken. And uh, his golf buddies at, at my store a couple weeks ago. But yeah, I mean, he just—they both love, love cooking on Traeger and love barbecue. Oh man, I know I'm jealous. You hanging out with Hall of Famers, huh? Yeah. 
but but hey, guys, once again, I know I'm talking about it cool as a cucumber, but mind you, when I'm there, I pinch myself five or six times. Like, <laughs> all right, wake up. You know what I mean? Surprise. That's part one. Trick or treat. <laughs> well, part two is going to be on episode number 74. If you thought that that, if, if you thought that that was good, wait till you hear part two. I got tail in. Chad Ward is extremely entertaining. Yeah, I could. I mean, seriously. I, what is it with people from Traeger? We have Doug Shiding, who you know we think he's fantastic. Now you got Chad Ward. It's it's like Traeger just says, you know, you got to be a, an incredible person to represent our company. I don't know, but great guy. Thank you, Chad. We're looking forward to part two in episode 74. Now, Jeff, this is episode 73. We know it's our Halloween episode, but it's also the number 73. Are we putting an asterisk next to this episode? And oh. you know what I mean. Is that number of home runs Bobby, Bobby, Barry Bonds hit? It's a single season home run record? 73, right? The ball that's in the Hall of Fame with the asterisk, is that the ball that has 73? Or yeah, that that's the 73rd, right? That or is it the or is it the record no. Which which ball is in the Hall of Fame? I with think the it's the one seven fifty-six. Okay. All right. Well, and it's funny because we actually saw that ball where the where the person did put there's an asterisk yeah. on that ball. But we're not gonna put an asterisk on Number 73, but Barry Bonds maybe should. Anyway, see you next time. Well, Jeff, this episode is almost over, and I must go back into my coffin because the sun is coming up and I return. Into, I would die, actually. Oh, I am already dead. But I must go back to sleep, and then I will go out and haunt the world. Happy Halloween, Jeff. Thank you for bringing me on to episode 73. And here is baseball always brings you home from Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski.